0: John chapter 5, let me read the verse that we left off with last week, and and then I'm going to read, we're going to work our way from verse 16 all the way to verse 30, but just for the sake of time, I'm not going to read the whole passage to start off with, I'll read the first like four or five verses, but I also want to read last week's final verse to transition us in, which kind of bridges the gap. So pick it up with me in John chapter 5, verse 15, remember Jesus had healed this man By the pool of Bethesda, and the man departed, verse 15, the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that he. Uh, said that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you that the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. Let's stop right there. Lord, we just ask again for the help of the Holy Spirit. The, the Holy Spirit that that gave John these very words to write down, that Jesus spoke, that John is now transcribing for us. Lord, we pray and we ask that the same Holy Spirit that was there hovering over the waters when you spoke the universe into existence, would speak to each brother and sister in Christ that is sitting in this room and those that are watching online. Lord, you'd speak to me. You'd give me things that are not in my notes but are absolutely what you want conveyed. For Jesus, we don't want to just be here and eat a meal. We want to be changed by it. And, Lord, we ask this in your name. And once again, Lord, remove me from the equation that we might hear from Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. I think we would all agree that hindsight in life is always a clearer picture of the fact. Wouldn't you you agree? You made a decision, and in hindsight, we say this, in hindsight, I would have done X, Y, or Z, right? The coming of Jesus to the earth and the completion of Scripture, when you get the whole canon, 66 books, Revelation is finished, you have the whole 66 books after his ascension, it clears up a whole lot of other things, doesn't it, that were foreshadowed in the Old Covenant. But if, if you were at the time of Jesus' coming, you know, so 2,000 years ago, if at that time you believed you knew everything there was to know, like you're a Pharisee, you could reject and resist God and not even know it you could be talking to God and reject him because you, know I know everything, everything is sealed and delivered. And this, of course, happened then, and it still happens now. You meet a lot of people who, they don't know. They don't even know a Bible verse, and they tell, they tell you what your faith is about. You ever have that? You Christians like, where did you get this idea? We don't think that at all. You Christians think you're so great. We think we're, we think we're wretches. But in respect to Jesus, he came, as we reviewed last week, as the word, as the word, your Bible and living flesh. And that's so important. Jesus was not coming to replace the word of God that was also known as the law and the Torah. No, Jesus was the word. The word become flesh and he came to fulfill, to fill up. If you fill a a half a gallon with pure water, and then you fill the other top with pure water, guess what you have? All pure water. Jesus came to fill up what was lacking, but he didn't get rid of what was already in there. In other words, the Old Covenant. He came to fill to the top the rest of the story. The rest of the story. He came to complete the Word of God. Not replace it, complete it. And especially those things related to him, what we call the messianic scriptures, the messianic prophecies, the foreshadows. And it's in hindsight we can say, ah, now we know why there had to be the shedding of blood. Now we know why there had to be all these lambs. Now we know why Isaac had to lay down as a type on the altar and his father Abraham was there. This father-son things make sense. And so Jesus... He had come to fulfill all these things. But also he came to show the Father to the world. We can't see the Father. We could not look on the Father right now in our our imperfect state and even live. We all understand that, right? No man can look upon God and even live. So Jesus comes to represent the Father, but in fact he is the Father hence his name, Emmanuel what? God with us. So with all that in mind, that's a lot of backdrop there for this text and if we kind of look at the, the old covenant to Jesus coming with the new covenant, all that in mind if you're taking notes, you see the title this morning The Father and the Son Reveal Through Christ. Now everything Jesus ever did was always revealing something about truth about us, about the Father, about the Holy Spirit, about the future to come. He was always revealing something. But we're going to look at just what he's revealing in this text. That's why we go verse by verse. As we kind of move our way through, we'll see some things that are really important for us to understand. Taking notes, we'll look at five things this morning. The first one I've titled, Hatred Toward the Sun." So hatred toward the sun. Prior to the healing of this man there uh, at the Pool of Bethesda, many, and in fact the vast majority of the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, those that, were, that held the Torah for the people, they had already rejected Jesus as, as their Messiah. They already were like, he's not for us. He might be for the poor class, he might be for the lepers, he might be for the Galileans, but he's not for us. We're above that. He's down here, we're up here. Many of them had already rejected Jesus. Some were still assessing and examining his life. His teaching, his claims, even examining his miracles. Others were still that run of the mill and different. Like most people you meet, they don't really, they're not against Jesus, they're not for Jesus, they just are much more into bass fishing or NFL or their life or their career. And so Jesus is not even on their radar screen, other than maybe to use his name as a swear word when they get really angry. Right? So there's that. And people, by the way, then and now, are especially indifferent if life is going pretty well. No really big needs. No one has cancer. Nobody is uh, dying. Everything seems, they just got a promotion, so you're generally even more indifferent in that state. Still others, they saw and believed the claims of Jesus, but they didn't want to commit to him. Nor he to them. As they preferred to retain the reins of their own heart and their own will and their own sins. But some of the religious leaders were at a significant tipping point. You all know what a tipping point is, right? It can go either direction. A tipping point, you know, right there. Some were at a tipping point. They were already skeptical of Jesus, just as they were about John the Baptist. And who is John the Baptist? He should have been a Levite. Why is he out there in the wilderness preaching? Um, With the clearing of the temple, I hear a car horn. It's okay. <laughs> but it's such a unique ringtone that I just, <laughs> I, li- I really liked it. <laughs> if you're tired of traffic, or you're not tired, you can have that, you know. So the clearing of the temple back to, uh, the clearing of the temple, remember that at the first Passover, was a major problem for the religious leaders when he cleared it up the first time. Then you had Nicodemus, as we kind of continue to go back, Nicodemus was the one religious ruler who was not repelled by Jesus. Now, there may have been others, but we, we specifically only know about him at this point. He was not repelled by Jesus' words or his ministry, uh, though we know he came by night secretly because of fear of his own peer group. Have you ever had fear of your own peer group? I have. What when I, when I, you know, working world or maybe the family, maybe God put on your heart uh, this year at Thanksgiving, just say a little something to cousin so and so. I'm all fired up, I'm going to do it. And you get there, not a word. Right, yeah. And you drive away and you're like, but I was so courageous practicing but had no courage when I got there. Sometimes we're like Nicodemus, like that. But it's his peer group. It's the Sanhedrin, it's the high priest, it's the, the temple priests. it's the scribes, it's the Pharisees, it's the, the rabbis, it's the synagogue rabbis um, that had ranged from leery about Jesus too jealous of Jesus, to dislike of Jesus. Somewhere on that continuum, they're all in that, for the most part, in that range. Primarily because, why? People are now going to Jesus instead of them. For to be taught, and for wisdom, and for understanding. The same way, remember, they started going to John the Baptist instead. And by the way, you see a distinct difference when John the Baptist. When people stopped going to John the Baptist and started going to Jesus, John the Baptist rejoiced about it whereas the religious leaders had a big problem with that because it fed their ego. But Jesus with the healing of the man on the Sabbath and then instructing him then to carry his mat this in their mind was a direct assault on their authority though they attempted to make it about God but it wasn't about God, it was about themselves his healing, his care in his mat, neither of these were against the law of Moses. None of that was against the law of Moses. Uh, These violated their oral laws, their traditions, their rabbinical mandates, known as the tradition of the elders. You'll sometimes see that term, tradition of the elders. Interestingly, uh, it would have taken more effort for four individuals to toss the man into the pool when the waters were stirred than for him to pick up his mat. And by the way, that would have been okay, but him picking up his mat was not okay. Isn't that interesting? If we had four men in here, it's, when you, and someone is like dead weight laying on the ground, takes some effort to get someone up into a bed or throw them into the water, that would have been okay. At any rate, many scholars believe Jesus healed and gave instructions to the healed man on the Sabbath on purpose. Why? to spotlight their hypocrisy and their added rules and to provoke a discussion which, in fact, takes place here. And I believe that's precisely the case. And instead of these religious leaders asking Jesus to teach them, correct them, instruct them in the validity of their oral traditions, their religious bondage, instead they're openly outraged, he's got to die. Not just, uh, not just words, they really mean it. Everything moves from toleration and dislike of Jesus to full-on hatred and even, we see the word in the text, persecution, persecuted. The word persecution, what does that mean? It means to make to run or to flee, to put to flight, to drive away, to press against, to harass, to trouble, to molest to pursue it in a hostile manner. Persecution is always about intimidation plus harm. Amen. Intimidation plus harm. That's why you, you know, even, even people, in a, you know, you have an abusive husband, right? It's intimidation plus harm. But the same is true with persecution against a person, and in this case, the very Son of God. We're going to press against him. We're going to intimidate. Obviously, they're trying to intimidate and make Jesus so uncomfortable that he just leaves or stops his ministry. Guess what? That ain't going to happen. Nothing's going to stop Jesus from fulfilling his mission. You will not intimidate him and say, that's it, I'm leaving, I'm going to Egypt. Like Abraham did. You're not going to leave. He's not going to run from anything, but he's going to walk steadily towards his sacrificial death. And aren't you glad that he's ready to do that? And did that. That he's not going to back down. He's not going to yield to their persecution. He's not going to acquiesce. And that matches up squarely, though, the fact that he's not going to move, and they now are persecuting to the point that they want to kill him. That matches up squarely with the objective of the religious leaders, the healing and the instructions of the Sabbath were bad enough. And Jesus says he's been working in concert with his Father, which they correctly interpret to mean God the Father, and they're right. He is, uh, he's not mincing words, and they're getting it right. This man just said, if we understand correctly, he just said he and his Father, he's saying he's equal to God the Father. In their mind, this is blasphemy, which could not be overlooked. He must die. Can you imagine, like, you know, you've, we've all had conflicts with people in your own family, maybe at work, maybe you and your boss. You don't go from zero to they must die in seconds. Right, 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 right. Like, But th- these aren't just words. They mean it. When they finally nailed Jesus to the cross, that was mission accomplished. Yeah. I and mean, we've got to wait till we get to that now, in, in, where we're at in the book of John but it's hard to believe that they can go from zero to hundred that much. He's, he must die because they believe stoning to death would have been the logical uh, Jewish response to that kind of blasphemy. But ultimately, this reflects their hearts, but it also reflects um, all of humanity's hearts. A lot of times, people in the Bible are there just to reflect us all, and all of us would have had more hatred than perhaps we think we would. Uh, In the book of Romans, Paul writes in Romans 5.10 this speaks of all of us here. Those of you online, we if you're saved now, you're born again, we were enemies. But we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. We were enemies. We were just as much opposed to Jesus in our hearts as if we wanted to persecute Him. Say, well I never felt that. It doesn't matter if you felt it, God said that. So you say, God's right, I'm probably not. I'm definitely not. All of us, not just the outwardly aggressive, are enemies of God. But this confrontation becomes for us, uh, as Jesus now is in this confrontation with them over the Sabbath healing, and now over the fact that he says he's equal to the Father, he's now in this confrontation but he now provides, as we'll see in the next several verses here all the way through verse 30, a clear revelation and an explanation of Jesus, of his relationship with the Father, of the decision that every soul is going to have to make, of the truth about eternity and judgment. And I know this uh, we don't really hear about judgment or hell that much in our country anymore, but it does exist and it is in the Scriptures, and Jesus talks head on about it, and then the means of salvation, which is going to be Christ himself. We refer to these, now we refer to all of that as doctrine. Doctrine. What's actually scripturally true that we build our lives upon, and these are essential doctrines. We would all agree that believing on Jesus for salvation is an essential doctrine, right? There's some things that are not doctrines. They're just like, uh, is it okay to have hymns or contemporary worship? That's not a doctrine. That's a preference. Doctrines are bedrock foundations. They don't move. It's always Jesus, It always will be Jesus. There's no other way. And we'll take a look at these things in just a second. But I'm saying that in, in the text like we're looking at this morning, we could preach for, we could, we could uh, look for weeks at just each individual verse, we don't have that kind of time, but understand what I'm doing this morning, even some of the bullet points you'll see, is I'm taking the rest of the whole counsel of God, because we have Genesis through Revelation, and we have the Bible which informs us of the Bible. So when Jesus speaks about one specific thing, here he might speak more broadly about it somewhere else, and we'll fit those things together. Does that make sense? So let's take a look at the uh, next one, which is point number two, verses 19 through 20, submission of the Son. Uh, Verse 19 and 20, he says here, um, "...most assuredly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do, for whatever he, uh, he does, the Son does in like manner, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and will show him greater works than these that you may marvel." The religious leaders were correct that Jesus' Jesus' claim makes him equal to the Father, and of course Jesus is equal to the Father. And yet within the Godhead of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, Jesus willingly submits to the Father. This happens in my marriage. Me and my wife my wife, actually has a master's degree. I do not. I have a bachelor's degree. Uh, She's just as smart as me. She uh, may be smarter than me in a bunch of different ways, but she willingly submits to my leadership not because I'm better, just because she accepts God's structure and order. Well, Jesus is equal to the Father, but in structure he submits to the will of the Father. In other words, the Father sets the plan, sets the will, and then he entrusts everything for the Son to follow to the letter, even that Jesus would follow the will of the Father, all the way to suffering in the cross. That's a heavy submission, isn't it? That you're already submitted, not just to the the awesome miracles. I would have loved to walk on water. How about you? But to lay down the cross, different story. Right. right? Most of us would love to just take a few fish and loads, and all of a sudden they're a bunch but we really really wouldn't want to lay down on a wooden cross and have nails driven in. So you can't see Jesus' level of submission to maybe ours by nature. It's why Jesus cried out in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26, 42, and prayed, Oh, my Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. Your will be done. But what Jesus expresses here is and encapsulates that uh, because the Father is perfect, listen to this, because the Father is perfect, and because the Son is perfect, as is the Holy Spirit, and because the Father's orchestration within the Godhead, which is beyond our comprehension this is of the Trinity now, which is beyond our comprehension is perfect, and then the will of God is perfect and the submission of the Son to that will is perfect that God And all of this then completely entrusts to his son everything about his will to be carried out in this earthly mission. All of it. The way that God completely entrusts everything to his son, even though God sets the plan, is similar. We see a similar picture of this in the Old Testament. Remember uh, King Pharaoh? He takes off his signet ring and gives it to Joseph. Every power is given to Joseph, but Pharaoh still is above in structure, but Joseph runs the whole show. For the, it said, Joseph decide who lived, died, how much grain. Everything was in Joseph's hands. Mm-hmm. That's the way it is with Jesus. God, God the Father says, basically, my signet ring is with him. He is the viceroy, in, 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 if you will, in all of the, my will to be accomplished. And yet in Jesus' case, with his submission, he's entrusted with all the authority, all the ministry, all the power, and, this is the one we would not want, all the suffering. All the suffering necessary for us to be saved and the Father's will satisfied. It's like a seesaw. You have us, our salvation over here, God's perfect will over here, and it has to be perfectly balanced and only Jesus can balance it with his outstretched arms. God's will our salvation, Jesus is the one that holds the whole thing together. A question for us, are we surrendered and submitted to all of the Father's will for our lives? All of his will for our lives. I'm sure you're all very okay with the beautiful restful times in life. You might have big plans this afternoon to do absolutely nothing. That's your big plans. To do nothing. That's every pastor's plan by about 4 o'clock. I mean, literally, that's our major goal in life, about 4 o'clock, nothing. But those restful times, are we also as committed to Father, saying, Lord, I receive the painful times too, the trying times, the die-to-ourselves-when-we-don't-want-to-die-to-ourselves times? Many of us would sign up for reclining with Jesus at Mary and Martha's house, Those two sisters making this awesome meal for Jesus. We would sign up for that. We're going to get really good Middle Eastern food. We just kind of chill out there all day. I'm up for that. All right, now the persecution part. Then we take our name off the list. And Jesus, he was constantly working, serving, pouring out to the point of fatigue and exhaustion for very thankless people. Some moms understand this, but anyway, but you know how that works. But are are we willing to go lower and wash feet? Not forced to do it, but willingly do it. Willingly do it out of a loving submission. That was Jesus. And in his submission, he did the miraculous and the mundane. A lot of times we don't like the mundane. We like miraculous, but mundane. But most of life is small little things, isn't it? And you're submitting to God in the small moments. You're submitting to God in the small moments. Submitting to God in the small moments. Lord, just keep me present right here. I'm at the doctor's office. I'm at the grocery store. I'm over here. Just help me to stay submitted to you because I never know how you're going to use me or work through me. Submitted at each time. Every step of Jesus was led by the Father in the power and strength of the Holy Spirit. But understand, listen to this, it's, it's Jesus' submitted life that reflects his sanctified life that gave him the power and authority for the supernatural life. And Why is that important for us? Because if you and I don't have a submitted life and a sanctified life, we can't have a supernatural life. And I don't mean that you're going to go out and be you know, working out miracles all over the place. I'm talking about living by the power of the Holy Spirit which Jesus promised in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 that power will come upon you to be his witness so you don't keep batting zero when it comes to boldness and sharing your faith. Uh-huh. Right. That's the supernatural life. How all that works, I can't fully explain it. Can't under- especially as it relates to Jesus, how he accomplished all these things all the time, always working together like the inner workings of some in- complex clock. But I know He wants us, I I know this, He wants us to follow in His submissive steps. Amen? I know He wants us to follow in His submissive steps. In His capacity as Lord of all, Jesus now pivots, and we're going to pivot here. Jesus now pivots. He's not going to stay in an argument with them. He's going to pivot to the things that everyone needs to hear including us and all of us online, including everyone on this earth about His coming and personally reveal The explanation of the Father, the Son, eternity, and the only way to life. If you're taking notes, let's look at uh, point number three here, Revelation by the Son. Let's pick it up with verse 21, which we haven't read yet. So these are verses we did not read at the outset. Verse 21, for as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to who he will. Jesus does not need to ask permission. He gives life to who He will verse 22. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. That all should honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Um, To just help unpack this a little bit, I've I've, in this section and the next section I've got some uh, sub bullet points. You'll see them come up on the screen, just to help unpack it a little bit, and also. Uh, for just the saving of time this morning. But if you're taking notes, um, breaking this down a little bit, what Jesus says here in verse 21 through 23, I've just put it in list form for you. Uh, Number one, the Father has the power over life and death and has entrusted that authority to the Son. In other words, God could do it Himself, but He's entrusted, back to the Pharaoh Joseph, He's entrusted it to the Son so the Son will carry out the power over life and death. Even though it rests with the Father, he entrusts this with the Son. Number two, the final judgment will rest in the hands of the authority of Jesus. There will be a final judgment. I know people think they're getting away with things. Right now, in our country today, you can do things with cameras on you and nothing happened to you. It's, it's, it's actually blowing my mind the things that people are now doing in broad daylight, not even caring if there's cameras watching, not even caring that God's looking down from heaven and sees everything, and no one does anything, the police can't do anything, no one can do anything because we've just lost our minds. And we've really lost our conscience and our bearing of what's even right or wrong, much less good and evil. But there will be a final judgment and Jesus will oversee that judgment. But what we did with Jesus will be the singular decision point about anything related to eternal judgment. So which is really good news because I don't know about you, but I've committed a lot of sins in my lifetime and you have too and they're all covered by the blood of Jesus. Yeah. So my single decision in 1995, June of 1995, to walk forward and bow the knee at Calvary Chapel Fort Lauderdale and turn my life to Christ, I've never turned back from that decision and God's never turned His back on me. He's kept me. We'll look at that uh, in just a bit as well. But Jesus will judge at the end of the age. Every, Every judgment will be in His hand. Number three, the Son will receive full and complete honor along with God the Father. Now this is one of these things that uh, is hard for us to understand sometimes as well. When Jesus ascended back into heaven, it said he sat at the right hand of the Father. Father. Right, so he sat at the right hand of the Father. Um, So there is Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father, but take a look at uh, these two passages and you'll see now we know that Jesus will receive the same honor as the Father because every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess the name of Jesus, even people that don't like to use his name but anything for a swear word will not at that time, they will bow at the name of Jesus. But in Revelation 3.21 it says and I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Here's one of these interesting things. So did Jesus sit at the right hand of the father or is he sitting on the throne with God? Yes. Yes. How does that work? You'll find out when you get there. Yeah. <laughs> you sat at the right hand and you're sitting on the same throne. How do you sit on both thrones? God's dimensions are way beyond our dimensions. Amen. I believe we'll see both thrones and yet I, see, I believe we'll see Jesus on both thrones. If that may, And then he says he'll let us sit on the throne with him. Which is even more mind-boggling because we do not deserve that opportunity. But nevertheless, um, and so then, this section here, fourth and final of this particular rejection of the son is a rejection of the father. Of course the extreme of this is that of the Jewish religious leaders. They didn't just reject Jesus they said we want to kill him. Which means that they would have wanted to kill God, which means they, could not, they would say, no, 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 we love God. We are the best God lovers on earth. And God says, if you reject my son, you're rejecting me. The more subtle in our lives and in our time and, and anyone that you meet, the more subtle is to pray prayers to God and yet never come to Jesus. You ever met people that believe in God but they don't believe in Jesus? We, a lot of people are not offended at all by saying, God bless you, you say Jesus bless you. That's a different story. Um, I remember Sarah and I, we'd only been saved a couple of years. We were still living down in the Miami-Fort Lauderdale area. Um, this is many years ago now, but uh, or 26 or so years ago. We were still living in that area, and uh, we were living in an apartment complex, and we were having lunch with uh, some of our neighbors and they were from South America and they had grown up uh, Catholic. Now They weren't devout Catholic uh, but they were grown up Catholic and so we were just having lunch with them. They actually prepared an awesome South American meal for us and, and we were friends with them uh, but we were just sharing our faith, we were sharing what Jesus had done for us, we were sharing why we'd put our faith and trust in Jesus all over lunch and I think we'd even had them go to church with us that particular day they came um, but they, they both said, they were, they were different ages, one was, uh, one was probably in her mid-40s, the other one was in her 20s, and they both said the same thing. They said, we believe in God, we just don't believe in Jesus. No. Now don't come and correct me and say, I know many Catholics, that is not, their, that is not what they believe. You don't need to, because I, I've met many Catholics and I've met many different explanations of their faith that are not even the same. So I'm just telling you what they told me That's what they said. Where they got it doesn't matter. The point is, that's what they said. And so I said, but there's a major problem. You can't have God without Jesus. And I just showed them from the Word of God exactly what it says. No man comes to the Father but by me. There is no acceptance with the Father without acceptance from the Son. Does that make sense? That's what Jesus came and taught. That infuriated the Jewish leaders because they wanted God, but they did not want Jesus. But the reality is they didn't want God either. They wanted their own caricature of God. Last section this morning and we'll come to a close. Let's take a look at this last section. It's the longest one and I have uh, unpacked it with eight little subpoints that that I'll put up on the screen in just a second. Starting verse 24, and this is a powerful passage right here. Most assuredly, you know Jesus doesn't need to say most assuredly. Everything he said is assuredly. If he says most assuredly, double take note because everything he says is assuredly. He doesn't exaggerate like us. Everything he says is true. Most assuredly. In other words, listen, 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 listen. Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word, you've got to hear it first, and believes in him who sent me, has, has, has everlasting life. And shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. "...and has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good, to the resurrection of life. And those who have done evil, to the resurrection of condemnation. I can do nothing, Uh, I I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge." "...and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me." It's a lot there, isn't it? You could could chew on this for weeks and still be getting new understanding. Not new truth, new understanding. There's only one truth. Your understanding will go deeper. That's like the roots growing deeper. But the revelation by the Son, which we just looked at in, in, in the previous section, certainly continues here, and there's some repetitive things, uh, and I even repeat a couple things even in the, in the bullet points I'll put up on the screen, but here in verse 4 uh, I could have put the previous four with these and just as one list, but I broke them up into two just so we can better look at it, better digest it as two different sections, because you have Jesus' revelation of the Father and then he moves more to what I would consider salvation and judgment. The focus here is salvation but the role that God the Father has entrusted Jesus in the work of salvation. So with that in mind, um, Jesus tells of, you hear him mention the word condemnation, but you also hear him mention life, you hear him mention judgment. My my pastor in Charlotte, who was Calvary Chapel Charlotte, now he moved back to San Diego, but um, when we lived in Charlotte, uh, he used to say often, you cannot know how good the good news is unless you know how bad the bad news is. And even though the gospel, by definition, means good news, when you tell people the gospel, you do have to explain to them the consequence of sin and that there really is a judgment to come and that there really is a hell. Otherwise, none of us need to worry. You know, you're, you're doing just fine. If you were to save if a car goes off a bridge... And I think this story happened just in the news like last week I saw a story where a car goes off a bridge, a guy jumps in the water s- pulls the person out he saved them from what? from drowning they're saved from something you and I are saved from our sins and hell and the lake of fire that's the reality no one likes to talk about that anymore I wish I didn't have to talk about it but it's true, just like death is real hell is real, but also heaven is real praise God, right? Amen. So you're saved from something. Well, if you're taking notes, first thing here in this listing that I've got, salvation comes through believing in and on the witness of Jesus. There we go. There. Salvation comes through believing in and on the witness of Jesus. It says explicitly, Jesus says, I say to you who hears my word and believes. You have to hear it. I heard, the gospel. I heard the gospel many times before I finally got saved at the age of 26, when I finally said, yes, Lord, I'm going to give my life to you. I, I had heard it before, but I believed it in June of 1995. And whenever you came to Christ, you believed it. If it changed you, your belief was genuine. But if it is genuine, it only comes through Jesus. And then he goes on to say, you have everlasting life. I don't have to worry every day. Mondays I'm saved, Tuesdays I'm not saved, Wednesdays I'm saved, Thursdays I'm not saved. You know how people live this way sometimes? Constantly losing and regaining their salvation? No. We've passed from death to life. Passed from death to life. Uh, Reverend Billy Graham said salvation is not an occasional vague feeling of God's presence. Is actually dwelling with God, secure in His presence forever. By the way, if you've been saved, you would never want to step out of it. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, you'd, it'd be like uh, you know somebody gave you a, a million dollars, that you wouldn't say, you know, I, I just kind of like casually I throw it out the window sometimes, and I go grab it sometimes. No, you would hold it. But better than that, Jesus holds us. But we were made in the garden. It says, God made man in his own image. What does that mean? Your cat was not made in the image of God. Your dog was not made in the image of God. Why? They're not eternal. Man was made for eternity. Which was great news if we didn't have sin in the garden, because we would have been in paradise perpetually. We were made eternal. Now, unlike God, God has no beginning, and he has no end. He's alpha and omega. He has no beginning and end. We have a beginning, but we don't have an end. We will live forever somewhere because we were created for eternity. But that eternity to be with God, that relationship restored that was lost there in the garden, is only, only, only through Jesus. A.W. Tozer said this, Jesus is not one of many ways to approach God, nor is he the best of several ways. He is the only way. He's not the best of several ways. You'll find people say, well, that's the way you Christians believe. We believe this. No, no, Jesus came and removed all the other options that I'm the only way. Again, I'm, I'm, some of the doctrine I'm teaching here is from other passages of Scripture just brought into these points. But Jesus makes the points. He doesn't have to defend them. He just says them. I'm defending them. Right. <laughs> he just says them. Number, th- uh, number two here salvation is to escape being found guilty. Uh, salvation is to escape being found guilty and our pre-existing condition of eternal death. We were already born dead in our trespass and sin. Salvation is to escape that, which only Jesus can do. I've I've told this to our church numerous times over the years, but some of you are newer may have not heard me tell it. But it will always stick in my mind. When I was still working for a software company, and I would come in on Monday... One of my coworkers, his Sundays was hitting that golf ball every single Sunday, and I would come in on Monday, and I was bivocational. I was teaching on Sundays and working for a software company, and while I was doing the whole kind of transitional thing, and he says, "Did you send anyone to hell this weekend?" He would say it every Monday, every Monday. Did you send anyone to hell yesterday? I'm like, I told you before. I cannot send anyone to hell. I can only tell them not to go there. <laughs> Everyone's already on their way there. We can only tell them, re- detour, uh, exit number five, or whatever. You know, so you can only tell people that there's a way of escape. You can't. None of us can condemn anybody. Only God does. And in fact, Jesus will do the condemnation. We'll get to that. Uh, number three, those dead in their sins and desiring eternal life will hear the voice of God. I love this passage in verse 25. Jesus says, Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Why does he say the hour is coming? Jesus is saying, the hour has come upon us, and now is that I am on the earth, and when I speak, those who are dead in their sins can hear my voice. And a matter of fact, this was being fulfilled at that very second as he's speaking. Anyone that hearing his voice, let's say Nicodemus was in the group again, had already heard from the dead of darkness and had been saved. Jesus is saying the hour is coming and now is. In other words, it will keep coming, it will keep being proclaimed, my voice will resonate. And we're hearing his voice resonate right now and anyone that is dead in their trespasses and someone online could hear this and get saved today they can get called out of the deadness and darkness of their sins but they have to hear the voice first cuz he says anyone who hears the voice of the son not just hears like audibly hears it but actually responds to it that's why i said those who hear it and desire eternal life jesus is going to he's not going to force you to take eternal life he's going to extend it to you it's your decision at that point Number four, eternal life flows from God the Father through the Son. Verse 26, for the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. There it is. The Father, uh, eternal life flows from God the Father through the Son. Jesus is the conduit of the eternal life that the Father gives. Number five, Jesus himself will execute final judgment at the end of the age. Verse 27, and he has given him, him being uh, Jesus' authority, to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Because Jesus has accomplished everything as a man, Son of Man, everything all the way to the cross, he has the full authority to execute the judgment that the Father is entrusting to the Son. Well, how does it work that way? You'll have to ask God. Why did he do it that way? I don't know. He did that's the way God did it. He says, you, have, you go complete the mission and all authority is in your hands to judge the whole world. That's because he says, he says, because I'm the Son of Man. Jesus is saying it's, it's very imperative that I do the Son of Man job and then I will judge the world. Of course, if we're not saved if he doesn't come and do that specific uh, aspect. Nobody that rejected Jesus in this lifetime will ever get away with anything. They will have to answer to him. Uh, Number six, we are in between two hours. Jesus' first coming and his final coming. He says, do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. We'll stop right there. Um, Everyone in the grave has not come forth yet. I I had the funniest thing. One of the kids in the church here recently Asked his mom, why doesn't Pastor Tim build us a cemetery out there, like other churches? <laughs> so uh, he was riding, I guess, riding by churches and noticed that lots of churches had cemeteries, and why don't we have one? So, anyway, we're not building one, by the way. Just, I'm just saying, uh, it was just uh, my point is that there's still a lot of people in those graves. They haven't been called forth from the grave. But Jesus said, Do not marvel the hour is coming which all will come from the grave. Uh, we're in two different, we're between two hours. The hour was coming and now is when Jesus is calling people from the grave of sin, but there'll be a final hour where everybody will be called from the grave, all graves. Everybody will be coming out of the grave, but they'll be coming into one of two kinds of resurrections. Two kinds of resurrections. Um, There's the resurrection, he says, pick it up with me, verse 29, and those who come forth who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. So we have two kinds of resurrection. We have an eternal life resurrection and an eternal death resurrection. And by the way, there's two kinds of resurrections, but several times, T-I-M-E-S, two kinds, K-I-N-D-S, but uh, several kinds, uh, two kinds, but several times of resurrection. Why do I say this? Well, Jesus rose first. He's been risen ever since the third day. He's the first fruits of the resurrection. You ever see that term in the scripture? He's the first fruits of the resurrection. Other people have died and will rise at the rapture. That's a different time. That's a second time. Other people will die and be beheaded for the mark of the beast in the seven year tribulation. They'll rise at the end at the second coming that's a third time same resurrection. Make sense? So there's only two kinds. There's a resurrection to condemnation, and there's a resurrection to eternal life. But within the resurrection to eternal life, there's Jesus' first, rapture, second coming. All those are resurrections of the same kind, but different times. Make sense? There's only, that's why we're all of one resurrection, his resurrection, we're all raised in Christ. We're baptized, we're raised up. It's a picture that we're all raised in the exact same resurrection. You don't want to be part of the other. Um, but there are, different, there are different times within that kind. It says here in First Thessalonians, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, and the voice of an arch- archangel, the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. That's at the rapture of the church. But then there will be others that will be risen at the end of the seven-year tribulation. Uh, And even others that will be risen, people that live, this will blow your mind a little bit if you didn't know this, if you actually live through the tribulation and you were saved and you go into the millennium, you could actually live, let's say, 500 years and die in the millennium and you're raised at the very end with everybody else because you're at the end of the thousand-year reign as well. None of that's in my notes. Anyway, that's just all just... (laughs) Final point number eight. Final point number eight, the judgment of Jesus will be based on the perfect law of God the Father. It's our final verse. Jesus said, I can do nothing of myself as I hear I judge and my judgment is righteous. It comes from the Father. So I do not seek my own but the will of the Father. The righteous judgment comes from God the Father. The judgment of Jesus is based on the perfect, perfect law of the Father. And we've got to come to a close here. But Let me ask you a couple of questions. Do you believe every single thing Jesus said here? Yeah. Every, even, if, even if it's parts you don't fully understand, and there's parts I still don't understand, and I've been studying it for years, and I'm like, still, Lord, this is... You've said a mouthful and then some for me to try and comprehend and and try and teach it to people. Do you, do you have eternal life? Those of you watching online, do you have eternal life right now from the turning of your sins to Jesus? Are you now following Him and submitting to him as Jesus submitted to the Father. Do you sometimes feel rejection from this world because you're in Jesus? You should. If you never feel uncomfortable, then there's something not right. You should feel out of place sometimes in this world. A lot of times in this world. You should feel disconnected. Little accent point there. Are you ready for Jesus' return? Yes. Which is now closer every single second than it's ever been. Or at least you're personal. And because, you know, we all have a point of death if the rapture doesn't come first. And, um, are these things you know, or are they things you're living? Hey, Lord, I know these things. I, I, I want us to appreciate what God has written here. I told the, the first service, um, and we'll close with this. Uh, We have a natural affinity for the natural things. What what do you mean by that? No one has to teach you to like cheeseburgers. You just will. (laughs) No one has to teach you to want to put your feet in the sand and watch sunset after sunset after sunset after sunset. You've seen a million of them, and and you still love them every time you see them. No one will have to teach you to like a really good dessert. No one will have to teach you to enjoy vacation. But you have to willingly abide to appreciate the depth of what we just read. It will not, it will, it will not, co- it's like Jesus is giving us spoon-fed stuff that's hard to digest, but far more important than the cheeseburger or toes in the sand or vacation. Does that make sense? So we have a natural affinity for the things that we just like but Jesus says, no, this is stuff you need. That other stuff fades as fast as one sunset to the next. This is eternal, amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, we just bow before you now. We need these truths that Jesus has given us. They're, they're difficult to understand. Some of them are simple, that you're the only way to heaven. That's simple to understand. But your relationship with the Father, very difficult for us to understand. And Lord, you don't ask us to fully Understand it all, but definitely to comprehend it and appreciate it as best we can. And Lord, we just thank you that you came. We thank you that you submitted all the way, not just the miraculous, but all the way to the cross, the suffering part, that we could be saved.